I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. We are continuing with Disaster Month. Ah. <laughs> yeah, this week we have the Towering Inferno. The another, follow-up. Ir- another Irwin Allen. Yeah. Yeah, the follow-up to the Poseidon Adventure. Let's see if at, at, at least spiritually, it was you know Irwin Allen had his his big hit. Poseidon Adventure was huge, um, biggest uh, grossing film of the year. Uh, got a lot of Oscar nominations, and Irwin Allen was like, "Hey, there's something to this disaster joint. So, uh, what can we do next?" And he went looking for another book like. Poseidon Adventure to uh, get in on this disaster craze because Airport had been a big hit based on a book. Poseidon Adventure, big hit based on a book. And uh, they found a thing called uh, The Tower that uh, Warner Brothers had bid on. So, yeah, if you start this movie, it says 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers co-production. So, yeah, we're technically talking about a Warner Brothers movie this week. Well, yeah, and then the thing is they had they bought the rights to the tower and Fox, Warner Brothers bought the rights to the to the tower after a huge bidding war between um, Warner Brothers and Fox, <laughs> Warner Brothers and Fox, and also Columbia, Columbia Pictures was in on that as well. Before Warner Brothers uh, got got there, and then um, Fox bought a novel called The Glass Inferno. So if you look at the credits, it says based on The Tower. And the Glass Inferno. They Fox wanted to make the picture, and Irwin Allen thought, no, this is this is too much like the tower. I've read this book and it's got too much of the same kind of idea. Similar characters, similar plot. If we make this movie with Fox and Warner Brothers goes ahead and ends up making The Tower and they come out around the same time, we're both going to lose. So they ended up deciding to make a joint collaboration. Which even for the time, was kind of unprecedented. There was a yeah. big press conference, and they they agreed to share the profits, to share the budget. Uh, they even split 
distribution. Uh, Fox was able to get the U.S. and Canadian distribution rights, while Warner Brothers got the rest of the world. Nowadays, you don't really see that. The only two times I can really think of those kind of scenarios was like Disney and Warner Brothers working together to, for Roger Rabbit, or Sony and Disney working together for Spider-Man. But yeah. neither one of those movies was really on the level of the Towering Inferno. Yeah, or they were, you know, it was based on kind of pre-existing IP in in both. I mean, Roger Rabbit was using pre-existing IP and uh, Spider-Man, Spider-Man is Spider-Man. Spider-Man is, is Spider-Man, you know, it's, uh, you had the thing of everybody wanted Spider-Man in the MCU, Sony had a lot to gain, Disney had a lot to gain, you know, it, it made sense. Towering Inferno is a completely unknown, you know, idea based on two books that were not already existing in the public mind, I mean, you know, they were they were novels, of course, but it wasn't like these were pre-existing franchises that everybody was clamoring for. The film rights were up for grabs before the book was even finished. Yeah, I mean, disaster was hitting hard at the time. <laughs> you know, it was the it was the seventies. Um, oh, yeah. So they took the tower and the glass inferno, mashed it together to get the towering inferno. Um, and so they took some characters from this book and some characters from that book and they shoved them all in the same location and they took some events that happened in this book and mashed them with some events that happened in that book. And yeah, they kind of made a movie loaf. <laughs> then they filled it with stars, you know, like Airport and like Poseidon Adventure, like we talked about before. They were like, uh, just put all the celebrities in it and nobody will notice. <laughs> and since uh, Irwin Allen as producer and Sterling Siliphant as writer had done so well with Poseidon Adventure, Warner Brothers and Fox decided we'll give them control of this project and we should have a guaranteed hit on our hands. Half an Oscar is better than no Oscar at all. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> um, they decided that they were going to cast two of the biggest stars of the time to play the two leads. We've got Steve McQueen. As our firefighter. Yeah, as the uh, the firefighter chief that comes in to help battle the blaze. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody knows Steve McQueen. He's, he's, he's the cool guy in the car in Bullet. Uh, but, of course, you know, he's also Thomas Crown Affair and... Uh, the Blob. Yeah, great, <laughs> great Escape. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Uh, you know, Steve McQueen, the the uh king of cool, there and the inspiration, of course, yeah, the inspiration for Lightning McQueen from Cars. 
Yeah. Because he was the car guy. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, the, he's the car guy. Um, and uh, then you got your Paul Newman here as the architect that had built the tower. Um, Voice of Doc Hudson from Cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A lot of Cars connections in this one. We're still not doing that movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, the uh, What's so funny, though, I love, I love uh, that today it's like, hey, Paul Newman, the salad dressing guy. Um, but no, did you know that at one point Paul Newman was an actor? <laughs> uh, yes, kids, it's true. Um, but yeah, um, you know, he had, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Cool Hand Luke and HUD and, uh, Sting. Uh, but the two of them were chosen to lead this all-star glittering cast and therein lies one hell of a tale because they were originally going to be the two leads in Butch, Cass Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and uh, McQueen was supposed to be Sundance Kid and they could not work out between them the whole thing about top billing and how they were going to be credited and, you know, who was going to get the most lines and all this kind of stuff. Things so, that are still argued between actors today. Yeah, but when they were cast in Towering Inferno, boy, did that come up again. Yeah, this was a kind of a first because both of their names are on screen at the same time. Yeah, and depending on which way you read the credits depends on who has the quote-unquote first billing because their names are done diagonally. So if you read it left to right, one of them appears to be first and if you read it top right to bottom, to left yeah. and if you read it top to bottom one of them appears to be yeah so uh it was kind of the first time that that was tried in this you know so yeah paul newman's name is a little bit higher than steve mcqueen so if you're reading top to bottom paul newman's name is first but if you're reading left to right steve mcqueen's name is first that was the compromise. <laughs> yeah, and they did it in the posters where if you look at it from a certain angle, it looks like Paul Newman's name is the first on the poster. And if you look at it from a slightly different angle, it looks like Steve McQueen's name is first. And they were both paid the exact same fee. That was worked out, but uh, it turns out that um, they were supposed to be kind of entirely equal. And unfortunately, in the 
final cut of the film, it, just in the way that the editing uh, worked out, it turns out Steve McQueen got slightly less screen time than Paul Newman and slightly fewer lines and ended up being incredibly angry about that. Egos, man, egos. <laughs> so, so bizarre that apparently, you know, it was, you know. Again, something that is still <laughs> issues with in Hollywood today. I got. I want X number of lines more than this guy. I want X number of screen time more on this guy. You know, I, 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 I don't know. It it ended up being a, a whole thing. Interestingly, William Holden also wanted. Uh, he was the the kind of third lead, I, I guess. Question mark. Um, William Holden, uh, a lot of people may remember from um, Sunset Boulevard. That's kind of where I remember him from. Um, of course, he was also in Network and uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, Sabrina. Um, but uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, of course, is one of the greatest films of all time. And that's that's always where he sticks out in my brain. He also was like, I am huge star, William Holden, and you will give me top billing, uh, at least as big as these other two men. And they were like, ha, 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 ha. no, you're you're not that big a star anymore. They are the big box office draws. You you are not. So he he was just he was just absolutely cut out of that conversation. <laughs> Poor William Holden. Um, yeah, he plays uh, the builder of the, you know, the owner of the building company that makes this that makes this giant tower. That is uh, kind of where we uh, where we ended up on that. But the problem is that uh, that when we when we talk about all of these you know names and and egos and stuff i'm not sure anybody can eclipse erwin allen himself because there is a story about the uh the music in this which is uh once again the score done by john williams mm-hmm. there is a story that apparently erwin allen went in to watch uh, the movie for the first time with the score and John Williams showed him the the cut with the score and Irwin Allen said you know I, I don't know it's just not working for me and he said I can't put my finger on it I don't I don't know and wouldn't give any further notes than that and walked out and John Williams said I, I don't I don't know what's what's wrong with it. I I think it's pretty good. And uh, somebody else in in the room uh, said, "John, I'll tell you what to do. When Irwin's name comes up in the credits, just put a symbol crash right there. Don't change anything else." They waited a day or two, brought Irwin Allen back in, 
and did everything exactly the same, except when Erwin Allen's name came up at the beginning credits, they put a giant symbol crash right when his name came up and left everything else the same. And Erwin Allen went, you know what? This is brilliant. I don't know what's changed, but abs- absolutely brilliant. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> and so apparently if you buy the score, uh, you know, like a, an album, you know, or a CD or whatever for the score for uh, Towering Inferno, that symbol crash at that point in the score is not there. But if you watch the film, when Irwin Allen's name comes up, there is a symbol crash to accompany his name visually. <laughs> and apparently that was the only change. Sometimes you gotta soothe the ego. Uh, yeah. I mean, he even puts his name here as action director. Well, that is the thing. And, and it was the same thing on uh, Poseidon Adventure. We didn't really talk about it, but uh, there is a director for the film, of course, that worked with, you know, all the actors and everything, which in in this one is uh, John Gilman. Gilman. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his last name. I apologize for that. But uh, Irwin Allen is the one who did the kind of stunt sequences and action sequences um, for for this and for Poseidon Adventure before it. Um, we we didn't really mention that that part of it when we talked about Poseidon Adventure. So yeah, I mean that that is a legitimate credit. Um, I, I will, I will give him that, but, uh, Irwin Allen was, was known to have, uh, quite the ego himself, so. So, uh, yeah, and speaking of legendary actors in this movie, Fred Astaire, the legendary Fred Astaire, this is the only, of all of his career, all of his career, he's been known as the dancer, the singer, and the musical guy. This is the movie he got his very first and only Oscar nomination for. Didn't win. <laughs> no. Best supporting actor. I love Fred Astaire, but debatable whether he deserved that nomination or not. I think it was one of the, one of the courtesy nominations. Well, honestly, the the reason why he didn't win is because this was the year that Godfather 2 came out. Uh huh. And nothing was nothing was beating Godfather 2 that year. So um yeah, no. No. Uh whether or not you consider it a legitimate nomination, it was definitely a legitimate loss. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um no offense to Mr. Astaire. Um but that was that was a legitimate loss for everyone in that category who was not in Godfather 2 cuz Godfather 2 is amazing. Uh I mean the the rest of the cast is just star to star to star. Faye Dunaway, Robert R- Wagner. Oh, oh yeah, Jennifer Jones. Oof. This was actually Jennifer Jones' last film. She Ooh. Uh, did not do any more films after this. Uh, there was a tragedy in her family not long after this film, and she ended up uh, devoting her efforts elsewhere. Um, so this would end up being her final film role. You got uh, Dabney Coleman in this one. 
interestingly, if you're a Brady Bunch fan, you got Mike Lickenland, who played uh, Bobby Brady, the, the youngest little Brady kid. Uh, at least the youngest little Brady brother. Uh, he's in this as uh, one of the, the two children that we follow throughout the the horrible disaster tragedy. We get uh, a crossover from uh, Poseidon Adventure. We get John Crawford back. Uh, you may remember him as the chief engineer in Poseidon Adventure, and he's back in this one in a small part, playing the part of Callahan. Um, not not a very big part. He's not on screen for terribly long, but he is uh, in here. The one that's kind of interesting, she doesn't get a credit as part of the cast, is we do get Maureen McGovern. Actually on screen this time. Actually on screen. Uh, we mentioned that she had a big hit rec- recording the pop, you know, radio version of the morning after uh, for Poseidon Adventure. In this film, she is at the party actually singing the big song for this film, We May Never Love Like This Again. We may never love like this again. Don't stop the flow. We can't let go. Which also won Best Original Song that year. Yeah. Against Um, uh, Blazing Saddles. Yeah, I love me some Mel Brooks, but I, I gotta agree with this one. <laughs> um, yeah, The Godfather Two did not have a uh, pop song <laughs> that that was submitted. Uh, um, the, it was it was written by the same people who wrote Morning After. The version uh, done by Maureen McGovern was actually the version you know used in the film this time. Um, interestingly, though, Fred Astaire wanted to do a song for the film. Hmm. And he did write a song and submit it to the film, apparently, but it was deemed a bit old fashioned and not in keeping with the tone of the film. So they went probably with, too, too musically and not somberly, I guess. Well, it just if you listen to the song that is used, um, it is very much 70s Eevee, easy listening lounge. Kind AM of radio. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's something you 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 hear on you know AM radio, adult contemporary kind of uh, stuff now. Uh, but it was the it was the sound of the time. Mm-hmm. It was very what was in style at the time. And apparently, the song that uh, Fred Astaire submitted was not the sound of the 70s <laughs> it just wasn't uh it was too too old fashioned to old hollywood i guess i would love to 
be able to know what that song was though yeah i i just i don't know it's it it sounds so interesting as a lost piece of hollywood history i don't know the one kind of final thing we gotta we gotta mention is this movie contains an oj simpson yeah uh he 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 was doing that sort of thing at the time. We didn't know he hadn't done nothing yet. L- let's let's move on. It, it's 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 basically slightly longer than a cameo. You know, he 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 pops in and out of scenes occasionally. Not a big part. So let's get into the actual story of this film. First of all, this movie is long. Three hours. I did not know that going into this movie. (laughs) This is the longest of the 70s disaster films. Of of that entire, you know, big 1970s, hey, let's make everything into a disaster film. This is the one that tops the... You know, the the time stamp <laughs> thing, because it is, whew, it is a, it is a slog. We say as a three hour Black Panther movie just got released in the theaters. <laughs> um, you know, if something happens in the Black Panther movie, which we haven't seen, we are recording it before it comes out. Um you know, then that I'm not against a long movie. Just do something in the movie. (laughs) Just do something in the movie. And I gotta say, uh, it takes them a while to get to the do something. And even after they do, they get to the do something, it takes them a long time to do anything else. (laughs) Yeah. Um, this, this movie could have used an editor. I'm I'm just going to say this movie could have been an hour shorter. Easily. So let's get to the short version of, of our of our opening thing here. So we have Paul Newman, who is our architect, returning after a two-year excursion somewhere. I didn't catch it. it he was in the woods somewhere. He he went into the, the woods somewhere. I, I don't know if this was like an outward bound sort of thing or what, or if he like went to go find Bigfoot. They are not really good at fleshing out the characters. You know how in Poseidon Adventure, we had like eight characters and we got to know basically everything about them pretty dang quickly? They do not do that in this movie. We are going to be using a lot of actor names because none of these characters have any personality and you don't know a damn thing about them even by the end of the movie. Sorry about that, folks. Strap in. This is going to be confusing as hell. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's just go with actor names, Ghana. It's going to be easier. So Paul Newman, he plays an architect. He's back in San Francisco after an extended leave of absence from this job as an architect. He returns because they are finally finished on his big magnum opus architectural project the glass tower the largest building in the world okay i i gotta tell you at 
in in the seventies, this would have been the largest building in the world. It is uh five hundred and fifteen meters tall. That is one thousand six hundred and eighty-eight feet, and uh it is one hundred and thirty-eight stories. All right. I'm going to give you now the uh Burj Khalifa, which is the current uh as of recording uh tallest structure right now the uh Burj Khalifa is known for being the tallest building in the world it is 829.8 meters that is 2722 feet which is just over half a mile and it has 163 stories there, there there you go as far as as what they were considering like 1974 this is what the new tallest ooh and 2022 this is what we've now achieved that there there you go <laughs> just just so you you know it's interesting that this is premised on he designed this building. I mean, not that this is really th that out of the the ordinary, I suppose, but that the architect basically, you know, he designed it and then he was like, have fun building that. And then he just like went into the woods for a couple of years. And then he was like, okay, I'm back for the opening. How'd you do? You know? <laughs> and 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 um Faye Dunaway, who plays his girlfriend in the movie, just is like, all right, you're gone for two years, come back, let's get into bed. Yeah, it's very interesting that he just wanders off for two years and then comes back and she's like, Oh yeah, I'm I'm here, you're, I'm your fiancé. You apparently just abandoned your fiancé for two years to go wander off into the, the woods. Because one of the beats of the story is that he was not, they were not able to call him. Like, he wasn't near a phone or Well, anything. cell phones weren't a thing yet. Well, no, no, no. But he, like, also wasn't, like, at a hotel or mm -hmm. a house or uh you know, like there there wasn't just a phone he wasn't anywhere near civilization yeah um you know cell phones not being a thing that's fine but like th they kind of made it a point that nobody had heard from him like he hadn't even called to check in on anybody for a long time it is the way it it seemed this movie is very confusing even watching it i i was like i, I don't really understand a lot of these I supposed mean, let's put points. it let's, let's put it into into perspective kiki let's say you are with a partner and your partner decides to screw off for 2 years doing god knows what god knows where and then all of a sudden he's that person is back in your life are you really going to be that quick to jump into bed with them? I know I probably wouldn't. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on like if it, if it was planned. Like, did 
did I agree to this two year absence? We're we're never quite sure. It set it seems like Faye Dunaway is supposed to be like a career woman or something, because there's a part where they're in bed together and she says, like, I also my career was going different places and I wondered if I could have our relationship and also my career or so like it seems that she's a yeah she seemed, or something she seemed, or, yeah so it seems that in the last two years she had focused completely on her career and she's getting the advancements in her in her career that she's always wanted and now here's now her man is back in her life so she's trying to wonder can she have the relationship she's always wanted as well as the career she's always wanted also, this is skipping ahead a little bit. It, am I the only one that got the idea that Paul Newman also may have a thing going with the builder's daughter? I also saw that maybe the the, the electrician might have had a thing with Faye Dunaway. Based on the way they're based on the way both characters are talking to each other, both both uh, Paul Newman and the daughter, and Faye Dunaway and the electrician. Because there there is a scene where Paul Newman goes to, like, once he discovers very quickly, because we are speedrunning this opening, let me tell you, this opening drags on for very long. Very quickly, uh, upon coming back, Paul Newman discovers that corners have been cut building this building. Which Short. leads to one of the greatest lines in film history. I do not know why this is not quoted all of the time. When Paul Newman confronts William Holden and says, if you had to save money, why did you cut corners and not floors? <laughs> Which is maybe one of the greatest lines in film history for all of its stupidity. I mean, it's just, it's one of the, one of the great bad lines in, in movie is how do you write a line like that and think, yeah, that's a good line and then take it to other people and they go, yeah, that's a good line. And then give it to an actor and they not laugh in your face and then they deliver it. And like the people on set, not just laugh. And he's 100% serious in this delivery. Not even, I mean, you know. I mean, yeah, Paul Newman delivers it like that is an Oscar-worthy performance. I mean, and good for him, you know, but it's like... And, and Sterling Sullivan is not, like, a bad writer. He wrote In the Heat of the Night. He got an Oscar for writing In the Heat of the Night. You know, he's he's a he's a good writer, but that that is, like... I don't know. Was he on drugs or something? It was if the seventies. So, if it, so, can I have those drugs? Because that sounds like some good drugs. Don't do drugs, was, kids. But also, can I have those drugs? <laughs> it was. It was the seventies. Everyone was on something. I mean, I mean, maybe, but I want to know what cocktail produced that line because that that sounds like an interesting. <laughs> I don't Who know. Knows? It's great, and I and I love it. Um, but yeah. So, Paul Newman very quickly finds out that they cut corners specifically in the wiring of the building. They were supposed to put in all these fire suppression systems and they were supposed to 
coat the wires in a special, you know, thing to keep it from sparking. And, and none of that was done. And basically the whole thing is now just a fire trap. Um, but according to uh, William Holden, well, we're up to code. We haven't broken any laws. And Paul Newman is saying, you know, that's BS. You can, you know, like fire codes are just a, an excuse people have for explaining why shoddy work happens. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, is that, I mean, this was made in the 70s, but, you know, recently there there have been some really major news stories that have been like you know in New York there have been apartment fires where like the the mayor has said things like well you know one of the tenants must have propped open a door or whatever we've, we're technically up, up to code and everything which is once again BS you know um, of course there's the, the really horrible one which is the, the Grenfell Towers in England uh, which is maybe the worst one uh, in the last 10 years that has become a massive rallying cry for tenant rights over in England um, and more power to them you know I mean not not to get too into it but just within the past year I, I lost a dear friend um, and his roommate and his girlfriend in a horrible fire that they probably could have escaped from had their apartment had a few more safety features and their landlord kept saying well you know technically we're we're up to code Technically, we're in the legal, but, you know, it's, an, it's another one of those things. It's an, another thing. You know, the movie keeps making that point. And honestly, as, as much as we're going to rightfully kind of rag on the, the bad parts of the movie, there are parts of this movie that are rightfully accurate in the way that buildings and landlords do frequently cut corners in safety features and are allowed by the law to skirt safety features to be technically compliant with laws in ways that do put people's lives in danger. And um, that is that is often that is some of the stuff that gets said by Steve McQueen since he is the 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 fire chief. And Paul Newman as well. I mean, yeah. Paul Newman did as the architect, it is repeated throughout the movie that he put in redundant safety features trying to make this the safest building on the planet. And the builder and the electrician, and we find out many other people along the way removed his safety features as non-essential in order to save money and it ends up being the death of many people yay um, capitalism yay capitalism uh and so it's brought up again by uh you know that paul newman tried to prevent this and steve mcqueen 
kind of hammers it home over and over and over again through the plot that if this had just been here, if it had been left in place and Paul Newman keeps saying, well, it was in the original design, you know? Well, that's what you do. That's what kind of what you get when you screw off for two years and let someone else build your build your building. I mean, in the end, Paul Newman leaving may not have been the problem because he is the architect. He's not the money guy. He's not the owner. He's not the builder. He's not the electrician. He is the designer. He's the designer. He had the good idea, but in the at the end of the day, he's not the one with the final say. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do feel bad for Paul Newman because he tried his best. But I'm not sure had he been on the ground the entire time, the best he might have been able to do would be warn people not to go to that opening night party, warn people not to take apartments in that building. I don't know. Tell also, Faye Dunaway to write a story about it. it, it that might have helped, but I don't know. So, uh, yeah, we've we mentioned the electrician. Richard Chamberlain plays the electrician, who also is married to uh, William Holden's daughter. Who is played by Susan Blakely. Yeah, he's he's the wormy little son-in-law. And he even says, hey, I only cut corners because you told me to cut corners because you wanted to stay on under budget. Yeah, but you, he's also, you told but, me to find two million dollars in the budget. Where do you think it was coming from? <laughs> but he's also a complete jackass because he's kind of rude to his wife. He even says, you know, every time I hear you talk, I hear your father. You can't seem to do anything unless your father gives you permission to do it. And very early on, this is very early in the movie, once Paul Newman finds out what's going on, he goes to his house saying, hey, where's your husband? I need to talk to him. And, and she she says, you know, hey, we've we've had a we've had a bad marriage for years. He only comes home because his clothes are here. And so, yeah, they're 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 talking about getting a divorce very early in this movie. Like the love has been gone from this marriage for a long time, if it ever was there. And she really seems like she's into Paul Newman, and Paul Newman kind of seems like he's into her. So I, I don't know. Maybe I read that whole scene wrong, but which plays into what I said later. Later in the movie, when when they're when they're in the party and they're trapped in the fire, and all of that, Richard Chamberlain goes up to Faye Dunaway and says, "Hey, you know, your your old man was gone for two years. Weren't you? You know, you got lonely." Or didn't you get lonely during that time? Maybe it was my misunderstanding of that scene because it sounds like those two may have had some sort of thing during those two years. I mean, maybe, but also it's just like, it's Faye Dunaway. Wouldn't you hit on Faye Dunaway if you thought you were about to die? Or if you passed her in the street? Or if you had the chance to hit on Faye Dunaway? But also, I mean... I. The thing is, is that even at the party, it seems like Paul Newman is still hitting on the the daughter. I don't know. It just it seems like there's something between Paul Newman and Susan Blakely is all I'm saying. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe I misread that. I I, I don't know. This is a confusing movie. Um, As all of this is going on, we get Jennifer Jones and her two kids 
Nope, they're not her two kids. They're the kids of a deaf woman who has rented an apartment in the building. See, then at the end of the movie, the girl calls Jennifer Jones mommy. Because I think her mommy died at some point in the movie. Because she's deaf and didn't hear them banging at her door. And her kids like to listen to loud music and headphones. Yeah, but they're... The thing is, is like she's the nice old neighbor lady, mm-hmm. and they're the kids of the the deaf woman, um, who skips out on the party. Weirdly, Fred Astaire is only at the party because he is there to run a con on Jennifer Jones. She is very rich, and he wants her money. And he is there to to somehow do that. I have no idea what this plot is, where it comes from, how this is happening. Yeah, when we first meet Fred Astaire, he opens a suitcase full of certificates. And he gets rummaged through, ah, this will do. So he's a con man trying to sell fake stock to Jennifer Jones because he wants her money. After all the disaster stuff happens, the to decide we don't need the con and we're going to get out of this together and be together forever after only knowing each other for a few hours. No, I think he's trying to marry her to get her money or something. And Jennifer Jones is going with it. It's like, we're going to get out of here together. I don't want to go without you. I mean, Fred Astaire is very charming, so maybe she's just a really lonely old woman with her cat and... She has a cat, by the way. That's like a plot point in the movie. The cat gets rescued by O.J. Simpson. That's like his big thing in the movie is he rescues the cat. All I could think of was, oh, no, you poor cat. Please claw the <laughs> the face and run away. I don't know. That's really all he does in the movie. Yeah, there's something about he's trying to con her in one way or another but he falls in love with her and maybe she falls in love with him at some point she says like oh i know that you're not really who you say you are and you don't really have a house on an island in the tropics or whatever but it's okay i like you for you and i don't know it seems like their love affair is going somewhere And then they get separated because she needs to take care of the children and he's going to go with the men folk and do men folk things. And then they, Uh, after all, after all this stuff has happened, they, they try to get the, the women out by having them, by bypassing one of the stops on the elevator and getting all the women and children out of the building. When another Floor explodes, blowing up the elevator and propelling Jennifer Jones all the way to the street below. But yeah. not before she hits the floor on one of the floors on the way down. That is one of the funniest things in in the movie because, like, I don't know how they did that effect, but it was done so badly. Because she falls out of the elevator and you see her falling and she hits, like, the 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 one of the floors on the way down yeah and the little the little mannequin ledge. or whatever that they threw out like it wasn't weighted properly and so it hit the the set 
piece they were using and it felt and it bounces off and yeah, falls it's off. like a little whirly gig or it's one of the funniest things um you know how we talked about how all of the stuff in poseidon adventure really holds up because it's all practical effects and camera tricks and everything not so with the towering inferno boy boy does nothing in the towering inferno hold up None of it holds up. It's all really badly done green screen with horrific matte lines. If and I was watching. Watch- okay, if you're watching this on a projector in nineteen in the nineteen seventies, it'll look all right. If you're looking at this on a old school tube television and maybe in the nineteen eighties, it'll look all right. If you're watching this. On high quality Blu-ray on a 4K TV, it does not look all right. <laughs> yeah, if you're watching this in ultra high def on a modern tele, oh man, it it looks so bad. It looks so bad. the The thing is, is like you know, there is almost no plot to this movie. So. Uh, speed run the plot. They cut corners. Uh, one of the wires sparks a fire. Because they cut all the corners, the fire suppression system does not work. The fire spreads on the night of the opening. The party on the top floor uh, is full of dignitaries and, you know, there's all that senator, kind of stuff. There's a senator, there's the mayor. Yeah. Um, and, uh, they, they can't, you know, they, they can't, uh, get down. They have to call out all the fire department in San Francisco to put out the fire. Things just keep getting worse. Uh, chaos ensues. The fire is winning. (laughs) Yeah, the fire is winning. Anyway, um, there is one part in this movie that is the funniest thing to me because the, the firemen are going to climb up an elevator shaft uh, because, you know, it's uh, 138 floors or whatever, and, you know, that they, they need to get. So they're, they're going to, to do some rigging and, you know, drag themselves up the elevator shaft because uh, the stairs are blocked with fire now. And so they... They open the elevator shaft and they're getting ready to, you know, hook up to the, the rigging and pull themselves up. And all of a sudden, some flaming debris falls past. And as it falls past, they realize that it's a body that's on fire. And it's the body of a fireman that's on fire. And it just falls down the elevator shaft. And they stand there and calmly watch this. Poor guy just fall to his doom. One of those firemen who was watching them, who just before this happened, says, I'm scared. I don't want to, you know, I'm scared, which is Scott Newman, Paul Newman's son. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, you know, they stand there and they just passively watch this, what should be an absolutely horrific scene. In another movie, this would be if this nightmare had a- if this character had a name, maybe there would be some emotional weight, but we never are introduced to this character. Yeah, it's just, as as far as we know, it's a mannequin in firefighter clothing. 
because that's what it is. Um, there's there's no context to this. There's no setup. There's no payoff. They just open a, a elevator shaft and see this happen. And then it goes back to the firefighters who also we don't know. They're nameless extras, really. And they look at each other and they go, my God, that was one of our guys. And I kid you not, that's the delivery. That's that's the amount of emotion they give. And another one goes, yes, it's horrible. Uh, and I'll then we never see those guys again. We don't know if they ever made it up to the other floor. We don't know what they were doing. We don't know what their mission was. We don't know if they ever put out the fire or did the thing they were needing to use that elevator shaft to do. Uh, okay, then. We I don't know do if they were traumatized <laughs> by that image. We don't know, like... Uh, yeah. if they knew that guy we don't know like if they, you know nothing I nope, wanted, that was I, just a it, it was like a family cutaway it was like a family guy cutaway joke in the middle <laughs> of this movie except it was tragic <laughs> I want to I, I want to backtrack a bit because we have because I want to talk a little bit about Robert Wagner's character he's obviously some some higher up in this in this building company. According and, to the Wikipedia, he is the public relations officer. <laughs> so anyway, he he goes up to his office. He's you know he's uh, I'm 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 gonna you know I'm gonna leave out. I'm gonna end work early. You know, get ready to go to this party. Turn off my phone. I'm not taking any more calls today. Oh, by the way, secretary, played by Susan Flannery. I need to I need you to dictate a letter for me. Oh, there was some dictating, all right. <laughs> because those two are having an affair. <laughs> and as uh, they are dictating, that's when the fire breaks out. And the uh, first instinct, Robert Wagner is to pick up the phone and call out, forgetting that he had, that he had requested his phone be turned off and not be interrupted. <laughs> and he does this... I don't know if he, he was trying to show how much of a man he was or he was just stupid, probably both. He decides that he's going to run for help through the flames with a wet towel on his head like that's going to protect him from the flames. R.I.P. Robert Wagner. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that there is so much... I actually said while watching this movie that it kind of made me appreciate Ron Howard and Backdraft because they went through so much trouble to get, like, what goes on during a fire correct. In that, you know, they, they actually went through, like, the, the physics and, you know, like, what, what goes on. Um, this movie was just... Irwin Allen going like do some stuff that looks alright you know he had probably heard the wet towel thing at some point in like some fire safety class and, and everything 
the the wet towel thing is supposed to be to like help your breathing. You know, you you put it over your nose and mouth to keep the smoke. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to trap the smoke. You know, to to keep your lungs and everything. You know, so if he'd have put it like over his his mouth and nose and everything, and run, it would have helped his breathing. He still would have died. <laughs> it's not really for for your you know. Um, well, the thing is, is that he runs through the room like a pinball, or at least the stuntman that is supposed to be Robert Ragnar runs through the room like a pinball, and in a room that has many clear pads and small pockets of fire spread throughout the room, he runs directly into every pocket of fire so that the stuntman can have his fire suit lit up by all of these, you know, because he's got a burn suit on so that the stuntman can be set on fire. If he'd have just made like a beeline <laughs> through the through the room, he probably would have made it, but instead he he's like a pinball and he just ping-pongs back and forth and hits the all of the pockets of fire so that the stuntman's burn suit can catch on fire. Um and ends up uh, dying uh, pretty horrifically. Um, and Susan Flannery dies not long after because the fire has finally made it into their bedroom. Yeah, because she opens the door at first to watch it to see if he makes it um, instead of closing the door back and blocking the door, which they had done before. Um, as she just opens the door wide and stands there to see if her boyfriend makes it uh, out of the room, uh, which he does not. Um, but the thing is, is that, uh, she, uh, the fire makes it into the room and she throws a chair through the window of the skyscraper and they're like a hundred floors up. Um, and she throws a chair through the window and breaks the glass. Uh, the one thing you will notice is that this is, uh, apparently before Safety glass was invented for skyscrapers because anytime anybody throws something at a window, it shatters immediately. Um, well, they well they did cut corners in making this thing, so you yeah, it, it may it, they may have had safety glass by this point for skyscrapers, but um, yeah, uh, this skyscraper does not. Anytime you throw any small object at a window in this thing, it shatters immediately like sugar glass. Um, but uh, she throws it, and of course, because they're a hundred stories up, the uh, wind comes rushing in and immediately uh, makes the fire billow, and she gets set on fire and then uh, falls out of the, the building. Yeah. Um, these two are maybe the most horrific deaths in the entire movie, um, which I think may go to the 70s morality about having an affair. Yeah, we've talked about 70s morality already. And then there's one that kind of comes out of nowhere. And that is the mayor and his wife, Jack Collins, who is probably best well known as playing the boss on the sitcom. If you watch the sitcom in the 60s and 70s, he played the boss. Yeah. So whatever main character's boss was usually played by Jack Collins. 
So he plays the mayor, and uh, Sheila well, she, uh, Sheila Matthews Allen plays his wife. And out of nowhere, they have this very heartfelt conversation of, we're never going to see our daughter again. She's just a child. She doesn't even know where we keep our safety deposit box. And don't say that. We're going to see her again. And it's like, it's like they're trying to recreate that emotional moment from Poseidon Adventure with, 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 the, with the couple that's trying to see their grandson. Yeah. But it has no gravitas because it comes out of nowhere. And also, we've barely seen these characters. Like, we kind of see them at the party when they're like, oh, Mr. Mayor, oh, Mrs. Mayor, you know, it's like. And then um, William Holden talks to the fire for the fireman saying, hey, I have the mayor right here to pull rank. We're not ending this party over a little fire. Yeah. And that's kind of all we see of this couple until they have this, you know, sweet little conversation. No, the funniest part, at least to me, is that they have they've been using the express elevators to get people out very quickly. And then the firemen come to them saying, hey, uh, the fires reached the shaft of the express elevators. Don't use them. So um, William Holden says, hey, we have word that the fire may have reached the express elevator shafts. Do not use the express elevator. But as soon as that express elevator opens, it everyone just bolts, bolts right into it. They're not listening to him at all. They want to get out of there. And sure enough, the express elevator stops halfway on the building, opens up, and is just engulfed in flames. They try to call the elevator back up to get them out of danger. And when it comes back out, there's just this one guy running out on fire. <laughs> just like... Well, they warned you. Yeah, I mean, we we, we told you. And I get it's a, it's a nice little moment for Fred Astaire's character who tries to put the guy out with his coat, and it just it's it's too late by that point. So they try different things. They they uh, the fire has gotten out of control. There's no way out from this party floor. So they've tried different ideas. They thought they uh. Eventually, all our main characters end up on this party floor. And that's like an hour of nothing. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they, have to, they have to make small little side trips. You know, uh, Paul, Paul Newman isn't at the party. Uh, he's off with his uh, fiance. Uh, he's everywhere. He's off with his fiance. He's off with the security guard, which is played by O.J. Simpson. Well, he's originally with the fireman. he's originally with his fiance when he gets the call about the fire, and he tells her like, you know, oh, you've got to try to get, you know, to safety and everything. And she ends up trying to go help the people at the party or whatever, and so she ends up at the party, and uh, he g- goes to try to check on the the fire and then he gets sidetracked trying to help the uh Jennifer Jones and the children and their mom and you know all that kind of stuff so but basically you know after kind of a a long time of everybody running around everybody ends up being trapped on the party floor because the fire is coming from below and 
anybody who didn't get out in that first push and make it to the lobby immediately has now been pushed up onto the party floor, which is the the top floor, basically. So they they, they have some ideas. For, you know, they decide to get a, a chopper up there to try to airlift some people, but these two women who get overzealous try to jump in front of the helicopter, which forces the helicopter to avoid them and end up crashing on the well, roof of the building. No, it's it's a little more complicated than that. It was they are running for the helicopter, but then um, the fire causes an explosion. So it's not the women that caused the helicopter to do. It's just that they're trying to get on the helicopter and it comes down low. And that's just when the explosion happens. The helicopter so hasn't even landed yet. I mean, the way I understood it, the helicopter hasn't even landed yet. They're running towards it. And t from my perspective, it looks like the helicopter is trying to swerve to avoid landing on these two people, which is no, because because it it's a very confusing scene, I admit. But Paul Newman signals them to start moving, um, signals to the women to start moving, and the uh, the helicopter as the helicopter is landing, um. And then you see where Steve McQueen is. Something happens. And there's an explosion. And then something on the... It explodes out the rooftop. That's how I read it, at least. I don't know. Maybe it is their fault, but whatever. So that's, that idea is out. They... Uh, this is where, like I said before, they bypass one of the emergency brakes on the scenic elevator that's outside and try to get the women out that way. But an explosion causes the elevator to, to get dislodged, which is where Jennifer Jones dies. So they have to use another helicopter with a wench attached to it to try to lower the exterior elevator safely. I am so mad at that scene. And I know this is going to sound bad, right? But mm. there's, they put a fireman on the helicopter. I mean, they put a fireman on the elevator with the uh, women and children that they're trying to save. And when Steve McQueen gets lowered down to try to hook at everything, the fireman has to climb up and help attach and everything. And then. Uh, there's another explosion and, you know, things happen and everything. And this unnamed fireman starts to fall and Steve McQueen's like trying to save him. But he's, you know, like Steve McQueen's attached to the helicopter, but the fireman is not. And so it's just Steve McQueen holding him and everything. And then we're waiting for him to fall and they're like flying this whole thing over and it's like a really tense scene and finally they get over and the guy falls into an airbag that they've set up <laughs> and I was like oh that was anticlimactic he saved him like nobody else on that elevator died it was just poor Jennifer Jones <laughs> like <laughs> like you had this like red shirt fireman and the whole time like from the second he starts like trying to climb out onto the top you're like well that dude's definitely dead 
And then, no, no. Nope, just survives. Survives the whole movie. Like, what a letdown. Yeah, and then they do the, uh, they, they're able to get some sort of buoy between uh, the glass tower and a different building that they could use to uh, lower the people into, you know, uh, kind of a swing swing chair from one building to another to try to rescue them one at a time, which that goes well until, like... And they're able to get the rest of the women that were left up on the thing, which is kind of funny to me. Because they sent a group of women and children in the glo- in the elevator down first, and then they have a raffle for who goes first in the little, you know, swingy chair between the buildings. That's how they choose it. Okay, so everybody's got a number and lowest number goes first and people are standing there and the little wormy electrician guy keeps trying to switch numbers with people and get himself a lower number. And uh, and um, Paul Newman keeps going like, stop trying to switch numbers with people, you little wormy guy, you know, and so like it's a whole big deal. Right. But towards the end of the movie, after they they've saved the elevator full of people, right? They they look and um there's gonna be this this whole like final Hail Mary plan and everything. And um Steve McQueen's like, you know, hey, we're we're not sure we have enough time to, you know, get everybody out, you know, before we have to do this Hail Mary plan and everything and it might disrupt, you know, getting everybody out on this little chair thing. And by that point, there are only men left in the... And I'm thinking, really? Statistically, it worked out that you put numbers in a bowl and you draw raffle numbers and all of the women in the room just happen to have the low numbers like well, they, there there are two bowls. We see the two bowls, and it, yeah, again, it's a, it's a it's a blink and you'll miss a trick. All of the women pick numbers out of one bowl, and I assume the men pick up the numbers out of the second bowl. And it said all the women first. They're in t- the intent is to get all of the women and children out of the fire first, and then the men can go by their numbers. Okay, I really missed that because that was. But any but. Yeah, anyway, they get all the women and children off the building, in, either in the elevator or on the swing chair. And they go for the Hail Mary plan. And the Hail Mary plan is to set explosives on the water tanks of the sprinkler system that are on the top floor of the building. That will, it's enough water to douse the flames, but it might also drown anyone in the lower floors. But it's the only shot they got left. And at this point, we have Richard Chamberlain, our, our swarmy electric guy. We have uh, Robert Vaughn as this senator, which we don't really know much, anything about in this entire movie, and a bunch of other guys. They all saying, you know what, screw this number system, screw this Hail Mary plan, we're getting off of here one way or another. And they all climb on the chair at the same time. Again, trying to mimic the everyone climbing the Christmas tree scene from Poseidon Adventure. 
And not only are they all trying to grab on, and they're even saying this is not going to work. It's too heavy. It's too heavy. As Swarmy Electrical Guy is punching and kicking all the other people off the chair trying to save his own ass. <laughs> and it goes about as well as you expect, and they're all dead. Because there's cuts the chair breaks. <laughs> Could they have survived if they had actually waited it out? Probably. But they clearly didn't want to wait it out. It was kind of funny watching this because there are two points in this film where the wormy electrical system guy could die. There's a fake out of his death earlier in the movie where he tries to, uh, they tell him that the stairway is blocked and you can't use the stairway to get out of the party floor. And he, and his wife tells him that. And he tells his wife, like, no, screw that. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go down there anyway. You know, come, come with me. And she's like, no, I'm not going to. And he's like, well, screw you. I never really loved you anyway. And like runs, runs down the stairway and gets hit by like a bunch of debris and falls down the stairs. And I was like, oh, that was a rather pathetic death for a guy who just, like, caused the deaths of untold numbers of people. Oh, it would have been fitting, though. Swarmy well, guy gets a swarmy any death. any death would have been fitting for this dude. Like, you want to see him die. Like, at the point of the movie where you're like, ah, he's one of the people that caused all the trouble, right? Yeah. Um, But it's kind of like a wah-wah kind of death, you know? It's like, it's not very brutal or, you know, it's just kind of like he falls down a couple of stairs and then it's like, yeah, okay. Um, But then he gets back up and goes back to the party floor and car- causes more damage. He's just like a bit banged up now. Um, And, and I love his response because his wife is go- he goes right back to him and says, are you okay? Are you all right? Is there anything you need? And he just reaches for a bottle of liquor and says, all I need is right here. Yeah, he's he's not a very nice guy. But then later, you know, he gets into that chair and you start to realize, like, ah, okay, I see what's going to happen now. And that was the point where I thought, like, ah, yes, this is a Disney film. The villain is going to fall to his death. <laughs> like, <laughs> um. It's it's a it's a fitting Disney villain death at that point. In a literal blaze of glory. <laughs> yeah, um they start to tell the people, you know, once once the tail Mary, you know, Steve McQueen calls up and he's like, Hey, we're gonna blow all the water tanks, you know, this is everybody strap in. And so all the men that are left are they do, they start, you know, the Firemen had brought up all these ropes and everything to help with the evacuation. And now that the chair is gone, you know, um, they start using whatever's left to tie themselves to the fixtures and the columns and everything that are there to keep from being washed away. Um the funniest thing is one guy ties himself underneath a statue and everyone's telling him, yeah, you don't really want to do that, which he doesn't listen to him anyway. 
Um, cool thing about that statue is that statue was also used in Hello Dolly. Oh. Yeah, it's um one of the statues that's in the uh the club, the restaurant when she goes in. Mm. So yeah. So yeah, everyone's strapping themselves in for this final Hail Mary, uh, Hail Mary plan of busting the water tanks to try to douse the fire that way. They they blow it up and then as soon as the water starts rushing in, there are these guys that are just as soon as the water comes in, they do the opposite of what they were told. They untie themselves, they start to run around like chickens with their head cut off. And that goes about as well as you would expect. Yeah, there are a couple of guys that get washed out of the w- window, which, of course, has been broken because they needed to use it to get people out through the, the chairlift. And, you know, um, and there are that one guy gets crushed by that statue uh, falling over because he picked the wrong place to tie himself to. Um, some of them look to have drowned because they're tying themselves sitting down. And the minute I see these people sitting down, tying themselves, it's like, then that water comes rushing in. You're, those people are going to drown. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people were smarter than others. Um, Fred Astaire is standing while he's tying himself up. Smart man. Smart man. But most of the people on the party floor do make it out alive. Um, well, a little, a little banged up from being pushed into walls by the water, but you know they'll survive. Yeah, and um, we see the water go through, you know, uh, floor by floor and everything. Because one of the things that Paul Newman has said in his yelling at William Holden was that the Doors and stoppers and everything that were supposed to close off each floor were never put in place. So the water is able to just run through the floors because nothing was ever put in to stop it. Um, So the water is able to just cascade down through the floors in a big waterfall uh, and put out the fire. Now, the interesting thing about this effect is they mistimed putting out the fire. And if you watch closely, and honestly, not even that closely, uh, you will see that the fire tends to turn off because they're using gas lines to provide the fire through most of the movie. Uh, you can see that whoever's controlling the fire turned the gas lines off and killed the fire before the water actually ever hits the fire. Hmm. So the fire actually stops and then the water <laughs> hits the... Well, I mean, <laughs> you, you had mentioned it last week that Irvin Allen, Irvin Allen tends to do this stuff on as cheaply as possible. And with an effect like this, you only really get one shot. Oh, yeah, but it happens basically every single shot that, you know, the guy just 
whoever whoever's controlling that that fire just jumps the the thing. So the water never actually puts out any of the fires, even in theory, because the fire always dies before the water even makes it even halfway to the flames. It's really funny to watch if you go back and watch the scene where the fire is supposed to be being doused by the water. Um, but yeah, so the the fire gets put out and everybody makes it out of the building kind of waterlogged. And we finally get the big moral of the story, which is that uh, William Holden makes it out alive. I don't know why he doesn't die. He should have. But he and his daughter make it down and she discovers that her husband has died. Um, she, she, and she is in tears. I, mean, I, I assume that at some level she she still did love the man, even though he, he well, totally well, didn't I love her. Well, I think it's more that she's just seen his body as street pizza. Fiery street pizza, too. Uh, because she sees it and reacts and her father says oh I was trying to keep you from seeing that <laughs> not that he was trying to keep her from the knowledge of his death mind you but he was trying to keep her from seeing the body um, so I, I I wonder if it was less that she was upset at his death and more just upset at the visual um, which we never get to see as the audience but we just see her reacting to it and then he immediately, quote unquote, comforts her with, we can't bring back the dead, but I'm going to make sure this never happens to anyone again. Which is like, I mean, dude, hopefully you're going jail. And like never... this didn't even need this didn't need to happen in the first place if you had actually put up all the safety features that were that Paul Newman not had put into the Not even all plans. of them. Yeah, not even all of them, but just like any of them cuz it seems like like none of the sprinklers ever came on cuz those seem to have not worked. Um none of the fire doors between floors were there. The coating that would have prevented the fire in the first place on the wires wasn't there. The like you see what I'm saying? Like not a sing if any one of those safety features just any one of them had been in place, this whole thing like it's one of those things of redundant systems are are there to make sure it never gets that far. And honestly, if you'd have put any one of them in place, you'd have been able to stop this. I mean, it's and even it's said pretty, pretty it's even said, throughout the movie. Yeah, it's even said earlier in the movie where one of the other building workers said we should delay this opening by two weeks to double check this this wiring and all their safety features. To which William Holden says, yeah, we're not doing that. We're, we are opening on schedule. And the fire starts, and it's kind of a small fire, and they could have put it out. But then he turns on all the lights at the beginning, which is an overflow to the power grid. 
after he knows that the wiring's bad. So if he'd have just turned on, like, some of the lights. At least the lights that are in front of the building. Yeah, turn on the lights in the front where, like, the cameras are. You know, you don't have to light up the back side of the building where the cameras aren't. You know, just, like, you know, the front face of the building where it looks pretty and the people are and they can go, ooh, ah, uh, and then, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to turn on every single light in the building. You just, you know, just just the front face. It's fine, you know. That would have been okay. It wouldn't have overloaded the power grid. It would have been fine. You know, it's there's so many points in the movie where it's like, if you had just not done one thing, or if you had done one thing, it wouldn't have ended up a disaster, you know? Um, you felt kind of sad for Poseidon Adventure because... Maybe even with the ballast in place, or maybe even if they'd have slowed down, it might have still ended up bad. Because a tsunami is a tsunami. Yep. That's a you know? yeah, yeah. That was a natural event. This was not a natural event. But everything in Towering Inferno is man-made. Yeah. So we get that one really bad moral from William Holden, who hopefully is going to go to jail after this film. Um, the one you really feel bad for is Fred Astaire, because he yeah. gets down there. He's calling. He's calling for 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 Jennifer Jones. Because after even after being told, you know, she 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 died, and he doesn't believe it. He's he's calling her name. He's he's trying to find her, and then here comes O.J. Simpson with a cat. He's like, here, you you got a cat now. And then he just walks away. And Fred Astaire's like, well, okay, I guess I, guess I got a cat now. Because even if he, yes, he is a con man, but it's, he seems to have endeared himself to Jennifer Jones that if they had both made it out of this event alive, you have the idea, the, the implication that something could have happened with those two to have a nice little, little relationship, but uh, no. <laughs> And now he's just left there with a with a cat. Like we don't even know if he likes cats, if he has the ability to adopt a cat. Like we don't know what his living situation is, you know. Mm-hmm. But he might be allergic to cats. We we have no idea. Like it's just like this man has been through a traumatic event, and now there's a cat. Like I don't know. But then we get the final final moral of the story. Which is Paul Newman sitting there being really, you know, sad. And all that everybody, you know, has died and he's worried and he's saying, you know, like, I'll never design another building again. And then Steve McQueen comes up and says, when will they let us, meaning firefighters, you know, people who understand the mechanics of this, build buildings. And Paul Newman goes, yeah, yeah, maybe that's the right way. I'll, I'll, I'll call you next time. Like that, that's kind of the implication. Like 
Paul Newman will build a building again, and he's gonna do it, it with Steve McQueen. And then Steve McQueen, cool car guy, gets into a car and drives off. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. And I'm just thinking, like, no. What the hell is that moral supposed to be? Because Paul Newman didn't do anything wrong. Paul Newman's like, I mean, Paul Newman and Steve McQueen together. Like, they're the guys that didn't do anything wrong in this movie. Paul Newman supposedly built a perfect building. Like, theoretically. He designed a perfect building. Yeah, he designed a perfect building. Steve McQueen never once goes like, well, there's your problem right there. Some idiot designed a, a fire door that swung the wrong way or something. Like, that was never the problem. The problem was that Paul Newman designed a building that was never built. William Holden cut corners and went cheap. And Richard Chamberlain put those cheapness into action. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, apparently, if Paul Newman's building had actually been built, it would have been a perfect fire-resistant building. You know, mm -hmm. like, if there had been a fire, it would have been contained to one floor, the fire suppression system would have kicked in, you know, if the fire department had been needed, it would have been very quick, and, you know... It, it would have been fine. So what 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 do what does he need to team up with Steve McQueen for? Apparently, he knew what he was doing. And what's to say if he doesn't if he does design another building with Steve McQueen's uh, fire expertise, and the building manager cuts corners again? All that is for nothing. Yeah, I mean the problem from top to bottom was William Holden. Like, your your problem isn't design. Your problem is capitalism. At the end of the movie, capitalism still exists. Like, William Holden's still wandering around. The problem isn't design a better building. The problem is design a better system. Uh, like, design a better society. <laughs> like, uh, yes. <laughs> like, and the whole thing of this movie is rah-rah firemen. Because right at the beginning of the movie, there's a whole wall of text praising the firefighters for the for their bravery of going into buildings. Which you should. Firemen are one of the bravest people in, in, in doing that. But this whole thing seems to kind of overturn... Um, overdo it a bit no i i am i am 100 percent on the side of firefighters absolutely firefighters and and paramedics absolutely 100 percent on on that side the problem is is that this movie is set in california and if you don't know right now as as we're recording this, quite a lot of California firefighters, um, at least the ones that go out and fight the uh, 
wildfires that uh, we keep having more of every year in California are prison labor and are either not paid or are paid pennies. So they're they're not actually like trained and and paid, you know, firefighters that are like, hey, I'm doing this as a career. They're prison labor that are put in extremely dangerous situations, paid pennies a day, if anything. Um, and then when they have finished their sentence are not allowed to become firefighters as a career because they carry that sentence on their record. So I'm I'm not saying that California is the only state that does this, by the way. Um, there are several states that, that do this, that use uh, prison labor firefighters. But, uh, you know, this movie is set in California, so that's why I'm, I'm bringing that specifically up. Just to say that 1,000% on the side of firefighters, um, but I would like them to be the kind that choose to be firefighters and are paid fair and living wages for the danger that they go into. And uh, maybe if you train prisoners to do this work and it is their choice, then once they finish their sentence, they should be able to continue that as a career for good and decent wages um, afterwards. Just saying. So, you know, mini rant on that. If you didn't know that was a thing, that's a thing. But yeah, no, I'm, I do like the fact that they were trying to be very pro firefighter. I do not think that they went too far in it because honestly, I, I do consider firefighters actual heroes. That's, that's a thing I'm very for. Yay, firefighters. <laughs> Honestly. So. And they hired quite a bit of them for this film. Mm. Uh, a lot of the people that you see uh, in, in this film were actual on-duty trained firefighters. So let's ask the question, Kiki. Does the towering inferno have the magic? Uh, no, this, this one, you know, we said the Poseidon Adventure had the kind of mystery science theater magic. This one is also fun to make fun of, but it is three hours long and even less happens and the characters are less interesting and Jane Siskel, uh, when he saw it, said that all of the characters were cardboard and you wanted to just let them burn. <laughs> um, and honestly, I kind of agree with, with Gene Siskel on that one. I'm going to say no. As I said, like you said, this is a three-hour movie, and you feel it. It is such a slog. But even if they had cut this down significantly, the characters 
it's an it's another situation of characters who are not likable with the exception of our two leads but it's not enough and even then the 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 characters are too too bickering to each other over things that are not either one's fault okay can i tell you can i admit something to you go ahead I discovered watching this film that I cannot tell Paul Newman and Steve McQueen apart. The only way I could tell them apart in this film is that one of them was wearing a firefighter costume and one of them was not. (laughs) They are both like strong jawed blonde white men with zero personality in this film. Like maybe in a different film, I'd be able to tell them apart, but in this film, they they have zero distinguishing personality characteristics because of the writing. Yeah, and they're styled like they have the same haircut. They have the same like you know, and they have a similar face shape and stuff. And and I suffer from a mild bit of face blindness. So a lot of times I have to tell people apart by costumes and, you know, the, the way their hair, hair is and whatnot, done yeah. and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So with them being styled very similarly and their face shape being very similar and their hair color and eye color and, you know, all that kind of stuff being like very similar and th- the characters just having no real personality difference, the only thing I could do for most of the movie is ah that one is wearing a firefighter outfit that must be Steve McQueen <laughs> so it was it was very funny to me um it, it was th- that's how interchangeable just the two main characters are in in the writing it's there's there's nothing to tell them apart just from the personality of the the character and honestly most of the characters are like that yeah Um, there's nothing in the story there's nothing in you know once again historically very important because this is what inspired die hard And by that, I mean that the writer of the novel that inspired Die Hard went to go see this movie. And afterwards, he kept finding himself having these thoughts of, what if a guy was stuck in a skyscraper and chased by a guy with a gun? Like, it's not a fire he has to fight, but, you know, a a guy with a gun. But he's trapped inside that skyscraper. And he ended up writing the novel that would eventually be turned into Die Hard. And go listen to our Die Hard episode, you know, for more about the novel and how it turned into Die Hard. So this this movie would eventually, you know, uh, turn into to that. But um, this would cement Irwin Allen as the the king of the disaster film. Um, This would be yet another in the 
hey, disaster films are ruling the box office. Um, it did get a lot of Oscar nominations and everything. So it's important in the history of the disaster film. But once again, like, it's not just, it's less fun than the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah, the, the, the at least with the Poseidon Adventure, you can chalk it up to the spectacle of it all. But it doesn't really have that here in the Towering Inferno. Yeah, there's a lot of time between set pieces as far as, you know, when things happen. Um, there's a lot of downtime uh, between the big stunt pieces. Um, and it you really feel that that drag. Uh, but it it really does uh, do. And I think probably where it comes from is unlike Poseidon Adventure, this was too books shoved together and so when you take a character from one book and you take and try to make them interact with a character from another book it doesn't really work y you know what I'm saying mm. you know and you go like well you know we have this event from this book happen and then right after it this event from this entirely different story has to happen and we have to somehow make it make sense. That that doesn't always work. But on the plus side, this movie inspired the song Disco Inferno. So let's move on to next week. We're off to space. Cue Aerosmith because we are we are heading towards Armageddon. Yeah, we're we're leaving the seventies behind and we're going into the nineties revival of the disaster film. The seventies were when the disaster film really took off, and then twenty years later in the nineties. The disaster film had a massive revival. So we're going to see how that happened. Uh, we just talk, You just mentioned Die Hard and we're going to talk about another Bruce Willis movie. Yeah, I mean, he, he was, uh, he was in a, a couple of them. So, yeah, this is by far the, the, the biggest of the of the lot so so yeah come back for armageddon you won't want to miss a thing <laughs> see what you did there and we will talk to you all next time bye. bye if you want to help the fight for human rights in the u.s the american civil liberties union works to protect constitutional rights for all americans their website is aclu Org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues.
Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.